now? <laughs> no yes, readings? Please. No, no readings. Jesus, I normally do a limerick. I'll try to write one before it's over. <laughs> okay. Arlene, alcoholic. Um, yeah, this time change had me pretty confused, but I'm easily confused at 82 years old. <laughs> so, uh, and in the truth is, I don't like speaking. It um, unfortunately it feeds one of my defects of character. It feeds my ego, and I can't afford an ego that takes me away from anything other than the simplicity of. I'm an alcoholic, and this is how I see alcoholics. There's no this. It's just this. I, I get the same day everybody else gets. And I heard somebody else saying it before the meeting that they have good days and bad days. And uh, that's life. And that's been my life. And uh, when I do share, I, I never share the same thing and I never know what I'm going to share and uh, I'm never prepared and so you get what you get on a daily basis and I saw the the child in there and I was thinking I'm wondering if some of my share is appropriate for a child and people were talking about uh, uh, Mother's Day and I had nine children by the time I was 27, trying to prove I wasn't gay. I was married twice. And, um, and when I was four years sober, I, I came out as a gay woman and I got in a relationship with a woman that I was with for 38 years. And I fell more in love with her every single day. And she passed away uh, in 2011 with 38 years of sobriety. I met her on her first day of sobriety and uh, moved in with her on her fourth day of sobriety. And we both had our own programs. The only meetings we went to together were speaker meetings. She had her meetings she went to, and I had my meetings I went to. And um, I like uh, starting out with a little bit of my childhood because it had so much effect on my life and me as a person. And when I was five years old, I saw my father kill my mother. And um, he got away with it. He planned it and he got away with it. When I was seven years old, I asked him about the night my mother died and he uh, made up stories about why she died and why there was blood and, and stuff like that. But what happened over the years when he realized I had seen what happened and there was a story in the newspaper about a young girl who remembered her father killing her girlfriend and uh, he ended up going to prison over it. My father uh, ended up threatening me four different times in my life, threatening to kill me if I ever talked about it again. When I was 30 
or when I was 22 years sober, I decided to look for my mother's family. And uh, the only thing I knew about him was the last name. So I went to our local library and I, they had phone books for all over the world. And I started uh, writing down phone numbers of people with that last name from that area of Washington state where they, my family had lived my mother and father had grown up <clears throat> and I ended up calling the last name on the list that I had made because it was the smallest writing I had and I and I knew I couldn't afford to be calling everybody because very few people at that point had their addresses in the phone book so I knew I was going to have to call people and so when the a man answered the phone, I said, I don't know how I'm going to explain this phone call, but my name's Arlene Jenneret. And um, he said, you wouldn't be my niece, would you? And it, it was my, my uncle. And my uncle had kept a newspaper at that point, 50 some years from the night my mother died. And he sent me the newspaper. And this is part of the newspaper. And in it, it validated. I remembered them coming home in a cab and they had their own car and a friend of my dad's drove the car home behind them. And that newspaper validated my memory that I had tried to drink away partially because for years I had a mental image of my mother laying in a pool of blood and it just was part of what I saw and I didn't want to tell anybody because I was sure they had locked me up and um, I ended up at uh, 10 years of sobriety I ended up doing 20 years of therapy and um, including uh, hypnosis because I have PTSD and I, I just thought I was depressed. But um, that's just part of my story. And I've been hospitalized four different times in my sobriety over my depression and the PTSD. The last time, and I, over the years, because in AA back then, everybody was against uh, taking any kind of medication. So I wouldn't take any medications for the depression. Even though I was hospitalized, I refused. I told the doctor who had become a friend over the years that I wouldn't take medications because it was against AA, against my sobriety. It could affect my sobriety. But I talk about the fact that I've been hospitalized four times for those depressions because I've met a lot of people that didn't deal with their depression and they ended up drinking again in, during the depression. So I, I think it's important that uh, for me that I got the help I got. I, uh, my first meeting of AA was in 1967, but I didn't believe in God then, and I don't believe in God now. So uh, at, a, 
after I went out and drank twice and I came back uh, one night at a meeting, I said something about the fact I thought they ought to uh, feed the Christians to the lions and they were way overdue. And uh, a man came up to me after the meeting and he suggested I look up the word God in the dictionary. My dictionary is about three inches thick and it had three descriptions of God and one of them was the chief object of my affections. Well, I had been sober long enough during those periods in between the drinking that I knew if I was gonna stay sober, I needed AA. And AA had become the chief object of my affections and still is today. Um, and I found out later that, well, I knew his name was Jimmy, but I didn't really know any, much about him other than I liked him and his shares were very always kind and about his life. And he didn't preach to people. He talked and shared his experience, strength and hope. And I found out that man was Jimmy Burwell. And Jimmy is the man that insisted on God as we understand him in the dictionary. The man that suggested I look up the word God in a dictionary. And it, that and another, when I was seven years sober, I was still not doing that well because a lot of things had happened. I had... Uh, lost my kids five different times, um, which brought on a lot of depression and anger and fear. And um, I was at a meeting and a newcomer was talking about the foreword of the 12 and 12. And I was still struggling with trying to understand the steps without accepting the word God and what he talked about was the foreword of the 12 and 12 and the paragraph that reads AA's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature. And it, if you want to read the rest of it, it's the foreword of the 12 and 12. And that saved me because I started looking for the spiritual principles. I could deal with spiritual because I'd been told that the first three steps were how, honesty, open-minded, and willingness. So I started with that. And then over the years, what I've done is when I do read the book or any part of the steps, instead of reading the word God, I read, uh, well, I'll just read the third step, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of sobriety as I understand sobriety. I just replaced the word God or where the word him refers to God, I replace it with the word sobriety. And that has worked for me. I've also, in the early part, before the meeting started, people were talking about meditation and I tried meditation, but I couldn't get the breathing, I couldn't get any of it. I couldn't get my mind to be quiet. And what I realized over the years is that the way I quiet have been able to quiet my mind is reading. When I'm reading, I'm not 
my head isn't out there in a dozen different places because I can stop drinking. I can't stop thinking. And thinking is my problem. And I also happen to be a co figured out over the years that I'm codependent. And I there's another book I read, and it's called The Addict's Loop. And he has nine steps in that, which in The Addict's Loop, it talks about either being um, dependent or codependent. And, and he talks about there are a lot of us addicts that are both. And I identify with that. I've gone through life making my life dependent on other people or codependent taking care of other people. And it's damaged me in a lot of different ways over the years. And I told you I jumped back and forth. When I drank, I uh, carried a gun and um, I also, uh, my drinking took me to a lot of different places. This is one of them. Uh, you can find Nellie's on, um, on the internet. If you put Nellie's of Natchez in, Nellie was a, a madam in a house of ill repute. And that, uh, that's where I ended up trying at that point I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me sexually and I um, drinking just let me think that that could be the answer if I, I wasn't getting enough sex or the right kind of sex and uh, I'm redoing the steps and some of I see a couple of you I've seen in other meetings and I I think you may have heard me say this, that I'm redoing the steps, but I was trying to capture that feeling of doing 30 days, the first 30 days of sobriety, because I relate when other people talk about it, but I wanted to feel it again. I wanted to, I remembering it just wasn't touching it. So I decided that I was going to choose to do 30 days of, of something and count the days and, and see how that made me feel. I was gonna give up desserts and candy because I eat ice cream pretty much every day. I have candy all over my house. And um, I'm one of those people, you know, you hear people they get sober and they eat right and they exercise and they make their bed and they do all that stuff. I don't, I didn't, I don't. And, uh, but I was pretty sure I couldn't give up desserts yet. So I decided I had been, my partner died, uh, passed away 11 years ago. And about three years ago, uh, I was, I was still traveling a lot and I um, traveled, when I travel, I always go to meetings and I, I'm not going to name the towns because some of you may even come from those towns. But anyway, I ended up having a booty call in one of the towns I was in and I'm 82 now. So even three years ago, a booty call for my age was something. So I decided 
And over the last three years, I was at another town. Both of them are, one's two hours away from San Diego, one's an hour away from San Diego. And I didn't, I didn't want to bring home anything I had to feed or water because uh, I just, I knew I wasn't up for a relationship of that kind. So booty call was okay. So I decided I would give up booty calls for 30 days. And I don't know about anybody else, but when I quit drinking, I couldn't stop thinking about drinking or taking a drink. When I gave up booty calls, I couldn't stop thinking about the next booty call, for God's sakes, you know. And it was the same thing, the obsession, the mental obsession, the, uh, I'm not going to do it today, but <coughs> I can do it tomorrow. <coughs> and... Uh, and I did. I've got 32 days of uh, clean time, and I actually got a call yesterday from one of them. <laughs> and I'm supposed to maybe go uh, for one night at a motel uh, on the 17th, but it's iffy. And uh, <laughs> and <laughs> it's iffy to me if I'm going to go because I've made 32 days and I'm not sure I want to go back there. And <clears throat> one of the things I do share about is having nine children by the time I was 27. Uh, when my partner died, uh, I was in a, a program because I, had, I lost my foot when I was 10 years sober and it put me on a disability. And um, my partner's lawyer said to keep me from losing my disability, she had to make a trust for me and I couldn't be the trustee. So <clears throat> she named one of my daughters who we thought were was clean and sober as a trustee. And uh, that daughter ended up stealing 153,000 out of the trust. I got a lawyer to remove her. She got a lawyer to keep me from removing her and the trust paid both lawyers plus a bunch of other expenses. So uh, by the time it was all over, the only thing which left was uh, uh, a little under $300,000 in a million dollar trust between what she stole and the lawyers took. And I didn't drink. Uh, my son died and I didn't drink. What I had done when my, uh, for years, I've made a gratitude list. I always put my sobriety at the top of my gratitude list because I know anything else I put under that I'm going to lose if I drink again. And when my son died, the first thing I thought about was the fact that I'd had him 44 years and that I had a good relationship with him. Uh, <clears throat> and I went to a meeting. My daughter, who is 22 years sober, her husband died. And when the coroner came to the house to notify her that uh, he had died, um, 
she had she was so upset she couldn't talk so she had him call me and I came and got her and took her to a meeting and she didn't drink and that was uh 13 years ago that her husband died and she didn't drink um when my partner died, I was grateful for having had a relationship with somebody for 38 years. And uh, there are just so many things that happened in my sobriety that have made me stronger that I hear people. The reason I got through them was a combination of the steps and uh but mostly it was the people in AA who had shared they had had those experiences and didn't drink. There probably was as many people in the meeting that shared they drank over the same experience as there were people in the meetings that shared they didn't drink over the experience. I just happened to go with, I can do this and not drink. Um, I meant, I mentioned that uh, I lost my foot when I, the day before my 10th AA birthday, I was uh, out fishing with uh, a couple friends and a sponsee. And uh, <clears throat> I slipped on an embankment going down to the boat on the lake. And when I slipped, the bones came out both sides of my ankle and tore my foot off. I ended up in surgery for, uh, I, I can't remember. I, I, it seemed like they said 11 hours, but that seemed like a long time for a surgery. But anyway, um, they did put the foot back on, but it's got, it was fused. It, it doesn't move. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and that was the day before my 10th birthday, AA birthday. And I'm almost I'm 51 years sober, and less than two months I'll have 52 years of sobriety. So I've developed arthritis in that foot over the years, and a lot of pain through the years. Um, I was suicidal before I got during my drinking. I attempted suicide several times. Uh, since I don't spend a lot of time on my drinking, because most of you, I think, know how to drink, and maybe you drink the same thing, and maybe you drink different things, but I drank vodka. I drank mostly straight vodka. When I was at a party, I occasionally would say I will mix it, and I'd have a glass of vodka with a shot of orange juice just to color it so people thought it was a mixed drink. But uh, <coughs> Vodka was was the drink I chose. Um, but I think I talk mostly about my sobriety because it's it's the things I've survived sober. I've survived alcohol, I've survived myself, and I've survived some of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you haven't had that experience yet, you're in for some pain. <laughs> <laughs> because no matter how long I'm sober, you can still hurt my goddamn feelings, you assholes. Anyway, there, 
that brings me to this. That's my asshole merit badge. And above it, it says the first step is uh, admitting you're an asshole is the first step. So I'm planning on starting a meeting for assholes. But it stands for alcoholics, sharing, sober, helpful, odd life experiences. Isn't that what we do? We're just a bunch of drunks sharing these odd life experiences. And your experiences are what has helped me survive myself <clears throat> and some of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Back to my suicide attempts, and I had to do an inventory on my suicide attempts. And what I found is that the depression brought on the, the fear, the fear brought on anger. But I, I, was, I did 20 years of therapy with a psychiatrist. And one of the, my biggest issues that he kept pointing out was I couldn't get angry at other people. I always ended up angry at myself. I always blamed myself. I always felt I was responsible. If a relationship wasn't working, it was because of me. It was, I was too stupid. I wasn't enough. I didn't do enough. I wasn't smart enough. And uh, <clears throat> what ended up coming out of the writing, the inventory on my on my suicide attempts was that I'd rather die than me change. And what I know from my sobriety, what I found out is I can't think myself into sobriety. I had to act myself into sobriety. And the action I had to take to start with was to not take a drink one day at a time. And that was why I wanted those 30 days again to feel that what, what the struggle was for me in those first 30 days, because it's so important to why I stay sober today. When I said I'm codependent, I've got a grandson that had two and a half years of sobriety. He has spinal meningitis and full-blown AIDS from drug use. And he's had 37 spinal taps to keep from the spinal meningitis going to his brain. And he went back out about a year and a half ago. And um, he's in jail right now. He's supposed uh hopefully going to come back into a program. But what my problem is, is that I start thinking I can say or do something to make him stay sober. And that's why I say I can stop drinking. I can't stop thinking. And when I, my thinking uh, starts going, I have to stop. I have writing books all over my house and one in my car <laughs> because when I start thinking, I have to get out a writing book and write down the issues that I'm thinking about and then separate the issues that are any of my business that I can do something about 
from the ones that are none of my business that I can't do anything about. And that's why this addict's loop has helped me so much because it has to do with codependency and my codependency. And uh, it doesn't take too long for me to figure out what's none of my business. And since I don't believe in God, but I do believe in the spiritual principles, I won't work. I don't sponsor a lot of people anymore, and partially because nobody wants to do it the way I do it. I didn't. I half of what I hear in AA today did not come from my books. They came from uh, hospitals and institutions that found they could sell a 10000 I think it's twenty dollars or $50,000 now to go into a hospital and get treatment. And what, uh, and I, I sponsored a, a couple people that have gone through some of these programs. And one of them brought me a list of things that they were told would make them drink again. And I looked at the list and I had been, I had felt or experienced every one of the things on those lists and not drank. So I don't want my sobriety based on fear. I want it based on hope. And hope is what I got from going to meetings and what I still get from going to meetings is the people are what give me the hope. The suicide attempt, the inventory told me that I'd rather die than me change. And yeah, it was my thinking. So I know that I I have to change my actions to change my thinking. And the most important action that I've ever changed was that fact that I took the last drink. I took the last drink on, well, actually May 8th of 1969, but I count the next day as my first day of sobriety, May 9th of 1969. I don't think I mentioned it, but when I did find my mother's family, I found out that May 9th was my mother's natal birthday. Now, since that was one of the issues I came in with, seeing an image of my mother laying in a pool of blood for I don't remember how many years, and I'm not going to make up a number about it, but I did see, I just saw it all, pretty much all the time or periodically. And it was me having to deal with how um, the people that should have loved me, my father, my mother, didn't show me love. So in my both in my drinking and my sobriety when i met people and got with people that loved me they scared me and it related to that childhood not being loved by people that i should have been able to depend on and love and feel loved by and i uh So I ran from people that loved me. And if I got in a relationship with somebody that didn't love me, I tried to stay and make them love me. And I spent a lot of energy and insanity in doing those kind of things. Uh, One of the people I ended up with was uh, 
I went, I, I left, I had lost my children. My husband uh, had uh, taken off with somebody with my kids. And he said, as long as he had the kids, he had me is what he told them. And I went to work in Yosemite as a maid because I didn't have an education. I didn't think I could get any kind of job. And uh, the woman I ended up going up there with, I was in a relationship with, and she ended up uh, getting involved with the young girl that was working there at the time. And when I told her I wasn't going to take her back, uh, she ended up stabbing me 22 times. I was about four years sober when that one happened. And again, I never had a good picker, I guess. When I was 18 years sober, I ended up in a 12-step um, call affair with a woman that beat me unconscious with a two-by-four. And I'm now blind in my left eye over that one. <laughs> and uh, at 82 and blind in one eye, uh, I get my driver's license for two years at a time. So life has its ups and downs. Um, I think, I think I covered, I probably didn't cover half the things I wanted to because at 82, one of the reasons people do like me as a sponsor is I can't remember my own story, let alone yours. So, um, <clears throat> I Oh, I did mention sponsorship. One of the reasons uh, I don't sponsor a lot of people is because I won't work with anybody that won't stick to the first three steps for the first year of their sobriety. Admitting their, being honest with themselves, those principles. And the honesty, open-minded, and willingness were the important ones. But what I found is I couldn't find open-mindedness in my dictionary. So I did a lot of writing about what open-minded meant because for me, it didn't mean finding God, which it seems like most people seem to think the second step is about. Um, but I related to the last word, sanity. I felt I was legitimately insane. I had papers to prove it by the state of California. But <clears throat> when I found I was open-minded about other people. So that word was very confusing to me and I did a lot of writing about it. And what I found is I wasn't open-minded about Arlene. And I didn't realize that until I started looking at the word. And in my writing about it and in looking in the dictionary and trying to figure out what open-minded really meant to me, for me as an alcoholic, I somehow ended up with the word forgiveness. And forgiveness in the dictionary means no longer, no longer require a penalty be paid. And what I realized is that the penalty I kept paying for not being open-minded about me was to drink again. And so if I'm truly open-minded about 
anything I've done while I'm drinking or sober, I have to forgive myself. And the best description I can give you that makes sense to me is open-minded is, is like an egg. Have you ever broken an egg? How many of you ever put one back together again? Open-minded means it's never gonna be anything but it was. And because of those two words, open-mindedness and forgiveness, I was able to go back. I couldn't do it until my father was dead, but I was able to go back to my father's grave and forgive him and forgive myself for the years that I punished myself for thinking what he said about me was true, for forgiving myself for thinking that love was never going to happen for me. Now, I don't believe in God, but I have found some books that have given me a lot of help. And one of the books that has helped me a lot was a book that Dr. Bob had his babies read. And it's, this is a small copy of it. It's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And even Bill W. said in AA Comes of Age, he said, Dr. Bob had more success with his pigeons than, than Bill had with his pigeons staying sober. And I think part of it was because of this book. And the greatest thing in the world is a book written by a man, I think he was studied to be a minister and he was from England for any of you from England in this meeting. His name was Henry Drummond. And the greatest thing in the world is from Corinthians uh, and it's love. The greatest thing in the world is love. And what he describes to me in there is the love of one alcoholic for another. But he has some phrases in there that make sense to me. And one is that talent is developed in solitude and character is developed in the mainstream of life. But the way he explains it, he talks about a man riding on a train and he's watching another man sitting next to him. And he can tell by his accent and the paper he's reading where he lives. And to me, that is like describing another alcoholic. I can tell, and I can be out somewhere and talk to somebody. I don't know if any of you have ever used the phrase, are you a friend of Bill W's? I can be out somewhere and I'll think that somebody maybe is a, an alcoholic, a sober alcoholic, and I'll use that phrase. And if they know what it means, I know they are a friend of Bill's W's. If they don't know what it means, then uh, I just say, well, it's just a catchphrase. And another phrase he has in that book to me was that um, you don't help a man become a better man by telling him what's wrong with him. And that's why I stick to those five principles I found in the first three steps, because when people I 
work with or share with start beating themselves up, I remind them of the things they have done right. I don't tell them, yeah, they're wrong. I remind them of the fact that they're staying sober no matter what, or they're staying sober, or they've gone to work, or they've gone to school, or they've paid bills, or the things they're doing that I know they're doing because I've gotten to know them in that first year of their sobriety. I've never worked with anybody that stuck to those first three steps and the five principles I found there for a year that I couldn't point out where they had in fact lived every one of the steps because the steps are for me based on those five spiritual principles, honesty, open-mindedness, forgiveness, willingness, and humility. And humility to me is simply that I accept what happens to me as supposed to have happened to me. Seeing my mother die like she did was supposed to happen to me. I don't know exactly why, but I, sharing it and the fact that I don't drink over it is, and the fact that my sobriety date ends up being her natal birthday to me is like the bigger picture of my sobriety. And love to me which that book is based on, he has nine ingredients of love. For me, it boiled down to when I drank, I thought love was sex. If you had sex with me, I was in love with you and you were in love with me. And that's one reason I chose not taking a booty call for 30 days <laughs> because I knew that that was an emotional um probably addiction for me, but I, I didn't go to Sex Anonymous because I didn't want to be cured. <laughs> when I, anyway, love to me boils down to, can I trust them? Do I respect them? Do I care about them? Do I have patience? And I got those four ingredients from my own sobriety. I respect myself because I've stayed sober. I can trust myself to stay sober. Staying sober is caring for myself. And I didn't know how to do that. And I have patience when I'm an asshole sober because I can be an asshole sober. And so I do tell any of the guys I meet that sobriety is just like sex. It has to get hard to get good. If your sobriety hasn't gotten hard yet, you probably aren't doing it right yet. That's it. I, I will remember a dozen things afterwards. Anybody who wants to take my inventory, do what my first sponsor did. Take my inventory, put my name at the top. When you get done writing it, cross my name out and put yours on there. You'll have the beginning of your inventory. Thanks.